Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, a couple of... How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in the study of God's word this evening, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are spiritually prepared. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we can gather together to freely study your word in this nation. Father, we continue to pray for the leaders in our nation. We pray for wisdom. We pray that you would foil those who would seek to make decisions and implement laws that would limit freedom and that would limit the uh, uh, initiative and opportunities that uh, individuals can take to uh, improve their lives and better themselves. Father, we pray for those who... Uh, are seeking to change things in a positive direct, direction to be implementing um, laws and principles that are consistent with the Constitution. We pray that you would uh, strengthen them and that you would uh, bless their opportunities and their initiatives. Father, we pray for us as we study your word this evening that we might be challenged by these things as we recognize that we face the same uh, limitations and challenges and fears and anxieties that the writers of uh, that the readers of this epistle faced, and sometimes we are uh, faced with questions and doubt and the temptation to give up or uh, just give out. And Father, we need to be reminded that we are in a race that does not end until you take us home and that we need to continue to uh, press on to the high calling that we have been given uh, by virtue of our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 12, and in this section we're dealing with the tale of two mountains, which I began last time, so open your Bibles to Hebrews 12:18. We'll pick up there as just sort of a reminder of where we were, uh, where we ended last time. We only got to the first part the tale of two mountains dealing with uh, Zion, uh, dealing with um, uh, Sinai last week, Zion this week. So while you're turning there, you might remember uh, uh, to me in prayer over the next couple of days. A friend of mine who we had on our prayer list for the last six or seven months went to be with the Lord about uh, Sunday a week ago, and they're having the memorial service uh, on uh, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. I'm not participating in the service, but we need to pray that the um, uh, that the gospel would be made clear. I hope it will be. It's a Presbyterian church. I've read their doctrinal statement. I think they're, they, uh, the pastor uh, will probably present the gospel from what I've read on the website. And, um, and then I'm also going to be running into, as I do at these things, um, four, I think four or five men that I was in... Uh, ROTC with in college, so that's always 
rather interesting. And I was talking to one today. In fact, last night I was thinking that if he showed up, I was going to have to take the time to see if he was saved. And when I was talking to him today, I asked him if he would be at the service. He said, no, he's going with his church on a missions trip down to uh, Mississippi to uh, help, uh, you know, rebuild some uh, houses and whatever that were destroyed in Katrina. So uh, that's a partial answer. I'm not sure what church he's in or anything, so that'll be interesting to follow that. I'll see him at a reunion in about a month. So it's always interesting when God keeps bringing people back into our lives that uh, we uh, knew at one point and give us that opportunity to uh, continue to be a witness to them. All right, as we come to this section here, this is the last uh, last part of of um, the last part of this uh, exhortation section that began at 12:1, goes down to 24, and then we have a warning in verse 25 to understand the significance of what is going on in 18 to 24. We have to have some idea of where this is headed. And so I want to take a moment just to focus our attention on the challenge, the warning that comes up in 25 through 28. So I'm going to read that first. After we go through this section where we talk about the fact that you didn't come to the mountain, which was characterized by fear and terror, which was Mount Sinai, but you have come to the mountain of God, which is Zion, which is characterized by as the eternal Jerusalem and the presence of the saints of all the uh, dispensations, there is a warning then related to that that comes in 25 to 28. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Now, the him who speaks is the God who spoke at Sinai and the God who again is one that uh, speaks from heaven at the end of, I mean, excuse me, uh, that speaks uh, from, in relation to Mount Zion, and he is the judge uh, mentioned in uh, verse uh, 23 uh, the, from Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Zion. And so this God, he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, that's Mount Sinai, much more shall we not escape, that is, those who are related to Mount Zion, much more so shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shall not, uh, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That is a statement of judgment. So God is spoken of as God the judge in verse 23, and then that is uh, developed in those last four verses. So that's where we're headed. Back to verse 18. Verse 18 begins the contrast. This is a, a parallel contrast here that's set up, as I pointed out last time, where the hearers that he's addressing who are uh, Jewish believers in Christ, they have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, and we're told in Acts chapter 4 that many priests came to know uh, came to accept Jesus as the Messiah, believed in Jesus as the Son of God, as a result of the message of John and Peter as uh, during those first days after Pentecost. And so it's believed that a number of these priests were probably those who'd been believers 
since then, and some who'd been led to the Lord secondarily by them, and yet now they're under persecution and pressure from others, and so they're they're wanting to give up and <clears throat> bail out of their Christianity. So they're being reminded of the contrast, once again, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant represented by uh, Mount Sinai and the New Covenant represented by uh, the heavenly city of God, heavenly uh, New Jerusalem, uh, Zion, the mountain of God. So initially the statement is, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, to blackness, darkness, tempest, to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. The characteristic here is gloom. It's painted as a dark picture with words that indicate something that is very uh, not only somber, but also that has a very uh, frightful, fearful kind of context. Uh, and there's a parenthetical explanation then following in verses uh, 20, 21. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Actually, I didn't address that last time. That's not in um, the best manuscripts, and it's only in the TR. So you'll only find it in a King James or New King James translation. It's not even in the, usually it's, uh, it, and it's deleted from the majority text. So uh, all that you have there, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. The point here is fear is what is the result of the encounter with God's law. Why? Because man can't keep it. That was the whole point of the law, is not to show that this is a way to get to heaven, but that it's impossible to keep all of the law. Uh, that's why you have to have the sacrifices. That's why you have to have the Day of Atonement every year. Is it man can't keep the law? There's no way we can acquire the kind of righteousness, sedekah, uh, that God requires in order to uh, go to heaven. For, as Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And then there's a contrast with Mount Zion defined as the city of the uh, living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so 1218 focuses on that first mountain, uh, the mountain of uh, Sinai, where the Mosaic law was given, and then the next section focuses on the New Jerusalem. Now, the New Jerusalem is most fully explained in Revelation 21.9 through 22.5, which we covered just recently in our study of, of uh, Revelation. Now, as just in terms of a summary of the section from 12.18 down through tw uh, 21, there, were, there are five things that are mentioned there. Uh, they came to a mountain which could not be touched. God is emphasizing that he is completely distinct and completely, uh, and, and he cannot be, uh, he dwells, as John says in the first chapter of John, he dwells in unapproachable light, and that we can't, uh, uh, he can't have a relationship with fallen creatures. So he a mountain which can't be touched. Uh, they came to a mountain that was uh, burning with fire. The idea of, usually represented by fire in scripture is the idea of purity. 
Uh, they came to a place of darkness, blackness, and tempest. I said, that is the Shekinah, or the dwelling presence of God, not this brilliant glow that is often uh, represented in art of the glory of God, but this is his presence. It's a, it's a dark cloud that descended upon, uh, upon Sinai. Uh, they, uh, there's the blast of the trumpet, the shofar, and then the voice of God where he speaks to Israel audibly. Uh, it's an external thing. It's not something they're hearing in their head. They're not just hearing uh, words. They're not having a, a group hallucination. They are hear, actually hearing the voice of God, and then afterward they tell uh, Moses not to, that they can't stand it anymore, and to uh, just go up and privately get the law uh, get the law from God. Now, at this point, we have the contrast, and we're going to go forward. But before we go forward into the next section, I want to take you to a parallel passage or a similar passage in Galatians chapter 4. So hold your place here in uh, Hebrews 13 and turn back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Now, Galatians is a wonderful short epistle. It's very easy, I think, to understand Galatians. There's two parts to it, the first two chapters and the uh, last uh, four chapters. First two chapters, last four chapters. First two chapters have to do with how do, the, the true gospel and how you are a person is justified. And the four chapters following have to do with how a person is sanctified. And the key verse in Galatians actually comes across in Galatians chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul says, uh, having begun, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, are you so foolish, 3 3, have you, are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit, in terms of their spiritual rebirth, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now being made perfect or complete? Whenever you see that word translated perfect in your Bible, most often it's uh, tele, from the teleos word group, and it means being made complete. And so Paul says, you started by the Spirit. Are you now trying to grow by the flesh? And he draws that contrast between the flesh, which is the sin nature, and, or the just human ability to please God apart from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit. And so the problem that they faced was that there were these Judaizers that came in behind Paul and Barnabas when they made the first trip to uh, southern Galatia, and they went to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and they were uh, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel in synagogues, and they had a number of people who uh, trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. But then these Jewish antagonists came in behind them who were called Judaizers, and they said, it's great that you get saved by just faith in Jesus, but that's not enough to really experience the fullness of everything God has for you. And I state it that way because that's usually how you hear this kind of thing expressed today. You didn't get it all at the cross. You need to have a little fuller gospel. You need to have a, you need to get a little more of the Spirit, a little more of God or something. And so there's something you didn't get at salvation that you have to work for or earn or get through ritual or mystical experience or some other 
uh, some other means. And what the Judaizers were saying is that you can get saved by, uh, by faith alone in Jesus, but you're really not going to experience what God has for you unless you also are circumcised and enter into the Abrahamic covenant with God as a Jew. That's why they were called Judaizers, because they're bringing them back basically under the law as the means for spiritual growth. And so Paul sort of stops here with this terminology. Notice the word, key words here are spirit and perfect and flesh. And the next time you see those words appear together is in uh, Galatians 5.16 when Paul says uh, that you are not to, we are not to walk uh, by means of the flesh, but by means of the spirit, walk by the spirit, and it is impossible for you to fulfill, there's that word again, teleao, to bring to completion the works of the flesh. So you have spirit, uh, teleao, for completion, and then spirit. And then he goes on to talk about the battle between the flesh and the spirit and the importance of walking by the spirit who bear, who then produces the fruit of the Spirit in the Christian life. It's not by law, it's by means of walking uh, by the Spirit. But he spends from 3.3 to 5.16 basically uh, developing his argument of why the law can't produce spiritual maturity. And so he covers this and talks about justification by faith and that, our ju- that we are justified uh, by faith alone and not by the works of the law. Uh, that's the question he asked in Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he develops that. And when he comes down to Galatians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 21, he's going to draw a contrast between law and grace. And he's going to use an, uh, sort of an allegorical application from Hagar and Sarah. And in verse 21, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, that's the Judaizers, those who were influenced by the Judaizers, those who think we have to, that in order to have the full uh, experience, the full blessing from God, that you have to enter in uh, back under the law. He said, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, uh, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, who is uh, the son produced through Hagar, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. It was Abraham's attempt to fulfill the promise of God by his own efforts apart from just being relaxed and trusting in God to provide provide what he had promised through, uh, through Sarah. So Paul says he was of the bondwoman who was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. God had promised Abraham he would give him a son through Sarah, and Abraham and Sarah tried to do it according to the flesh. And so Paul then says in verse 24, which things are symbolic. Actually, literally, it's which things are allegorical. So this is the only time where Scripture uses allegory, which is taking a literal event and then taking it to have a representative or symbolic significance. And he says, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, 
the one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage. That is, the Mosaic law gives birth to bondage because you, you, you become a slave to works. You become a slave to trying to please God, recognizing that at any moment you could commit some sin or some act uh, for which you could not have forgiveness and for which you would have to uh, pay eternal punishment. So that is, uh, being under the law is related to bondage and slavery, and that is identified as Hagar. On the And then in verse 25, Paul says, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish establishment in Judea that had rejected the free offer of grace through Jesus Christ. Uh, and then he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above, so here we see two different Jerusalems, an earthly Jerusalem and a heavenly Jerusalem. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, verse 27, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. Uh, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So this is where Paul is taking in verse 27 a quote from Isaiah 41 and applying it uh, to the situation that it is God who is the one who produces life in the barren womb just as he produces spiritual life where there is a spiritual death. And he then comes uh, to conclude in verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So... Church-age believers are children of promise because we are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation in contrast to the Judaizers who are trusting in the law for salvation or for sanctification. So what we see here is this contrast between uh, the law, which is Mount Sinai, and the heavenly Jerusalem, which is going to represent grace as it repre- because it represents the future destiny of all believers. And I pointed out when we studied through Revelation chapter 20, uh, 21 down through 22, 5, that our destiny isn't in heaven. So we sort of muddy the waters when we say, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. Well, that's true because we're face to face with the Lord and we'll be uh, at a heavenly destiny for a short period of time for the judgment seat of Christ and during the time that uh, the tribulation is going on on the earth. But then we return to the earth. And our uh, present will be on the earth during the millennial kingdom, ruling and reigning with Christ. And then the new Jerusalem will come down to the earth in the in eternity. And we don't spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. So this is related then in this contrast between Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, the old covenant of the law, and the New Covenant, last time I stopped in looking at the New Covenant, which is identified in Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 through uh, 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is quoted verbatim in, in Hebrews chapter 8. So, uh, um, the writer of Hebrews has already reminded his readers that they have um, they they have uh, seen that the new covenant is called the new covenant because it replaces the old covenant. That's the only reason he quoted it. 
is to emphasize the fact that if it weren't called the, the new covenant, then maybe the old covenant would be seen as having more permanence. But because it was called the new covenant, and it's said here in verse 32 that it's not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, we see that the new covenant was intended on the basis of Old Testament revelation to replace the old covenant. So the old covenant was always intended to be temporary and it's inadequate in terms of providing for salvation or uh, providing for eternal destiny or for uh, sanctification. So the new covenant is that contract that God initiates with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The sacrifice for the new covenant is the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. The new covenant doesn't begin it's not instigated or inaugurated. Those, those are the terms that are used. Very important to understand that distinction. Not initiated or inaugurated until Jesus returns, and it's at that point that the new covenant goes into effect. Now, we're going to get a lot of this, a lot of study on this as we go through Acts, because uh, the, one of the first big uh, issues we run into in the study of Acts is uh, Acts, I mean, is um, in Acts 2, when Peter quotes from Joel 2 and says this is what the prophet Joel spoke of when he's talking about uh, their uh, speaking in languages on the day of Pentecost. He identifies that with what Joel said in Joel 2, in Joel 2, 28 to 32. And that is the uh, in relation to the coming of the day of the Lord and the establishment of the kingdom uh, in the future. And that's when the new covenant goes into effect. And there's a lot of discussion on this because people want to say, oh, see, the new covenant went into effect on the day of Pentecost, but not completely. It's partially here. So the term theologians use is it's already here, but not yet. It's, it's a dualism. It's a, it's a dialectic. It's partially here, but it's not fully here. And so I always wondered about that, and there's a lot of confusion and a lot of fuzziness in the way people talk about this. And they'll try to say, well, the new covenant is here partially because we see that um, there's a knowledge of the Holy Spirit and there's a forgiveness of sin. And so that part's here, but the rest of it's not. And that just, that, that just doesn't do justice to how the passages read. So we'll get into that as we get into the study. We are... Teaching, and Paul says we're ministers of the new covenant because that's where we're headed, just as we are headed for the new Jerusalem, the Zion city of God. But we're not there yet. But look at how this is mentioned when we get into 1222. You have come to Mount Zion. Are they there yet? No, they're not. It is a perfect tense verb, which indicates completed action, because once they trusted Christ as Savior, their eternal destiny is so secure that it can be spoken of as having become a completed action, even though they're not actually there yet. That's, uh, and so the very fact that he uses a perfect tense verb here it, it is, supports the whole doctrine of eternal security that because they had, they were already saved or justified by putting their faith alone in Christ alone, then uh, their eternal destiny is secure and it's not going to change. It is certain. So in verse 22, the writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, that is all one phrase that, uh, that refers to the same uh, thing. This is the same city that Abraham was seeking and looking forward to in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. There we're told that Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder is, is God. And this is the first uh, indication here that this Mount Zion and this city of the living God is not the earthly Jerusalem. This is the future Jerusalem. So this is the heavenly heavenly Mount Zion. Now, there's another place to go to here to show that Mount Zion here does not refer to the earthly Mount Zion, but to the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, some of you may be wondering, where in the world is Mount Zion? Well, when you go to Israel and you are there at the Temple Mount, that is not Mount Zion. It is believed that the temple is built on Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham was to have sacrificed Isaac. If you are facing the temple from the south, then there is a little bit of a higher uh, ridge line up to your left to the uh, to the uh, that would be to the west of the temple mount, and that is Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the location where the Jebusites had a fortress when David took it back in the uh, early days. It's also uh, right there at Mount Zion. You enter into the old city there. Uh, that's the uh, the Mount Zion Gate, and if you are going in that gate, those of you who've been there, that's where they had all these uh, uh, bullet holes. All, where all it just it just all shot up because that's where there was a tremendous amount of fighting during the uh, uh, Israeli uh, War for Independence in 1948, as uh, various uh, Jewish uh, outfits were trying to. Uh, penetrate into the old city, which was under control of the uh, Arab forces, and they were trying to rescue about uh, 2,000 Jews that were basically isolated, had been isolated, and been starving. Uh, and they were trying to get in there to to deliver them. They never uh, fully succeeded in regaining control of the old city at that time. It wasn't uh, taken until 1967. So that is the literal earthly Mount Zion. But let's turn in our old in our into the Old Testament to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, we see uh, one of several examples in the Old Testament where Mount Zion is not just applied to the uh, earthly Mount Zion, but is also applied to the heavenly abode of God. Psalm 50 is a psalm of uh, Asaph, and he begins, we'll look at the first, um, we'll look at the first, I think, 11 verses. The mighty one, God the Lord. So, it began speaking of him as the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one. God is the generic term El, and then he's identified by his individual name, uh, Yahweh, indicated in your Bible probably by um, small caps. Whenever you see God or Lord in small caps, that indicates it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God taken from the Verb Hayah, the Hebrew verb Hayah, meaning to be. God said to Moses, when Moses said, explain to me your name so I can tell people who sent me, God said, I am 
that I am, indicating he is the eternally existent one, the self-existing one, had no beginning and no end. So the psalm begins, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken. Again, emphasizing that God is the one who speaks. He speaks and everything comes into existence. He also speaks in judgment, which is a theme of this, of this psalm. He, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. This is out of heaven, where, which is God's abode. So Zion here speaks of the heavenly throne room of God. Uh, speaking of God as the judge. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come. So he's coming from somewhere. He's not coming from Jerusalem. This is written in Jerusalem. Speaking of God coming from his heavenly abode, which is referred to as Zion. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him. So this is referring to God's coming in the future in judgment and fire, uh, devouring fire, indicating uh, his judgment on mankind. And it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people, that is, Israel. And what he cries out is given in verses 5 and 6. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That would be a reference to the uh, Mosaic covenant. He's calling to uh, Israel. Gather my saints together to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So here we see the emphasis of righteousness related to the character of God because righteousness is the basis of his judgment. Now, when does this judgment take place? This is related to the judgment that will take place, I believe, at the uh, end of the tribulation period where the angels go forth and will gather to Israel, all of the surviving uh, Jews upon the earth, the elect and the non-elect, and then they're going to be uh, going to be separated. Verse 70 says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And so he is, says here that he is not going to uh, judge them on the basis uh, of their sacrifices, but on the basis of their relationship to him. And that is seen when you get down to uh, about verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces. See, they have forgotten God. And so the instance, is, the uh, issue is, as we've seen many times in, in the Old Testament, is that God does not want their sacrifices. He wants their trust. He wants them to be obedient to him. And, he's, and so disobedience would be those who forgot him, indicated as the wicked earlier 
uh, back in verse 16. So here we see, uh, turn back to he- turning back to Hebrews, that Mount Zion represents the heavenly abode of God and where God dwells. So we begin in verse 22 by saying, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, which is identified then as the heavenly Jerusalem. So we've seen in Galatians uh, chapter 4, 23 and 24, a reference to the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21 talks about the uh, new Jerusalem descending uh, on the earth, and that is what this is describing. So we're going to see another dimension here, or reference to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. Now, we studied that when we were in Revelation 21, but we get a little different view Viewpoint here, so this has to be a reference to something that is yet future, and so the first um, the first inhabitants of the New Jerusalem that's mentioned here are this the innumerable company of angels, this innumerable assembly, some may say, or uh, of angels. And these are the holy or elect angels. And there's a little bit of a translation uh, issue here uh, that doesn't always even come through in the, in the uh, English. But I think it's tried to, they've tried to include that in the meaning of the word uh, company. And uh, it is this word, uh, panegyric, which comes over into uh, the English. And it indicates a festive gathering or it can indicate an assembly. And so we have this assembly of angels. And the word translated innumerable is the same word that we have uh, over in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 when you have myriads upon myriads of, uh, of angels. They are an innumerable number. You can't... Um, uh, that, that you can't number them. However, they are. It is a finite number, but it is beyond uh, the scope of man's ability to uh, to comprehend. So, th- the first inhabitant uh, of the New Jerusalem are going to be angels. Now, we saw in our study of Revelation 21 that there are angels who are stationed at the twelve gates around the the New Jerusalem. And so they are present in the New Jerusalem. So we have the first group here. That's the innumerable uh, company or group or assembly of angels. Now, it, the, the Greek text is a little difficult, and the, the scholars are split as to whether that word that's translated company is applied to this clause or the next clause. I think it probably goes to this particular clause and that we are talking here about this uh, assembly of angels that are also, also spoken of in various places in the Old Testament as gathering together uh, in an assembly. And so they come together, they sing for joy, they praise God, they worship God as we see in Revelation 5, 10, and 11. Also, uh, another example of this, uh, the angels singing praise to God would be in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 10. So this is this joyful assembly that is praising God. So that's the first inhabitant of the New Jerusalem. Then we come to verse 23, and we have the uh, second uh, group, the, to the general assembly and church. And this is the, sometimes this is translated assembly here, uh, but it's ecclesia, 
and it is the church of the firstborn. Now, that term firstborn is an important term to understand. It is applied to Israel back in Exodus chapter 4. But in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews chapter 1, the phrase firstborn is a term of that relates to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. And he is the firstborn in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, because of his uh, preeminence among men in his humanity. So firstborn does not always indicate first in terms of order, but it can indicate preeminence in terms of position. And so this is, word is used and applied to Christ in passages such as uh, Colossians 1.15, one uh, eighteen and Hebrews one six, and these refer to um, Jesus in terms of his preeminent position by virtue of his being the God Man and having died on the cross uh, for our sins. So this first phrase, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, is a phrase that applies to the same group. So not only are angels present in the new heavens and the new earth, but we also have church-age believers who are going to be present in the new heavens and the new earth uh, under this category. So this is uh, the, their presence. And then also we see as we look, let me go back to the previous verse, you have come to Mount Zion, that's a physical location, and within that location, you have the angels, you have the uh, church-age believers, and you also have God, who is the judge of all. Now, we saw in Revelation 21 that God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, will take up residence on the earth during this, the new heavens and the new earth. There, the text in Revelation 21.3 says that there's no need for a temple in the new Jerusalem, I mean the new heavens and the new earth. No need for a temple because God is taking up his abode with us and the Lamb. And so uh, here we have a reference to God as the judge of all who is living, who is present in the new Jerusalem. So we have the angels, number one. We have church-age saints, uh, resurrected, rewarded saints in the New Jerusalem. We have God, the presence of God in the New Jerusalem. And then the next category says to the spirits of just men made perfect. And that, again, is the word teleos, the idea of already being made complete. So this is a description of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints as well. The church-age believers are in the category General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, and then the believers from the Old Testament and the tribulation period are just men made perfect. Now, how do men become just? They become just only by uh, receiving the imputation of righteousness. Uh, Genesis 15, uh, 7, God said that uh, Abraham... Uh, Abraham believed God, the scripture says, and it was counted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. And this is repeated again several places in the New Testament and is a foundation for understanding that righteousness or justice is ours only by virtue of it being given to us as a gift 
by faith, not by works. And so Old Testament saints uh, and tribulation saints are indicated here because they are not members of the church. That's only during this dispensation. They are indicated as just men made perfect. They have now entered into phase three uh, glorification and are present in the in the heavenly Jerusalem. Genesis 15.6, I think I said 7. Genesis 15.6 is the basis for uh, understanding justification by faith alone. And then we have the presence of Jesus. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So we have God the judge, being God the Father, and now Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So he is the mediator of the new covenant by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin, and that sacrifice is the foundation for the new covenant. And it is his death which is indicated by the word blood. Now, when we see this phrase, as I pointed out before, the blood of Christ, the the shed blood of Christ, or we're saved by the blood, uh, that is a metaphor in Scripture where blood represents something. Shed blood represents a violent death. And so blood represents death of some kind. And so when we read of the blood the, and to the blood of sprinkling, it really speaks of a death that has occurred. And it's not Jesus' physical death that saves us from sin. It is his spiritual death. His spiritual death occurred when he separated judicially from God the Father. Uh, scripture tells us that he who knew no sin was made sin for us in Second Corinthians chapter 5. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. Now, Jesus does not become sinful. He is not corrupted by sin. He does not become personally sinful. He is, he receives the imputation of our sin so that he can bear the punishment for us as our substitute, but he remains personally impeccable. He never sins. He just bears the penalty. It is a legal transaction where God assigns to him our sin. Now that's very important to understand in terms of the parallel. Jesus, in terms of his character, never becomes a sinner. He never becomes unrighteous. In the same way that when we are justified and his righteousness is credited to us, we don't become experientially righteous, do we? We are still experientially sinners and sinful and fallen. We still have a sin nature and we are still corrupt. But legally, we have been assigned his righteousness so that it is his righteousness that's the basis for God's judgment of us that he declares us to be just, not because of our character, but because of Christ's righteousness. So if we flip that around, when Christ is on the cross, his character never changes. He remains impeccable or sinless. It is just that he is legally credited with our sin, 
so that he then pays the penalty for that. And that occurred in those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness came over Golgotha and over the city of Jerusalem so that men could not see him suffering, bearing the penalty for sin on the cross. It's the only time he screamed out when he was on the cross, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is during that time that he bore the penalty for sin. But he doesn't die physically. When it is over and, it is, and the payment has been made, then Jesus died physically. That's not to say his physical death wasn't significant or didn't play a role, but it does, but not in our salvation. It's not his physical death that pays the penalty for sin. So in Hebrews 12.24, we read, To Jesus, who's the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling, that is, he uses the word sprinkling here to connect what happens on the cross back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, where when the lamb was killed, when his throat is cut, and the blood from the lamb was sprinkled or splattered, which is probably a better translation, was splattered upon the altar indicating that there is a payment for sin. And so it is the death of Christ on the cross that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, it's interesting, he doesn't go back to Moses, does he? He doesn't go back to the sacrifices in the Mosaic Law. Now, we might think that's what he would do because he's contrasting Sinai with Zion. So why doesn't he go back to, to Moses? Why doesn't he go back to the Levitical offerings. Why doesn't he go back to all of those sacrifices or the Day of Atonement sacrifice that are within the Mosaic Law? Why does he go all the way back to Abel? The reason he goes all the way back to Abel is that's the first mention of a sacrifice in the Old Testament, and by going back to the very first one, he's including the entire sacrificial system that predated and anticipated the sacrifice on the cross. So it, it would have been wrong if he had just gone to the Mosaic sacrifices because that could have been distinguished from the non-Mosaic sacrifices that preceded it. So by going all the way back to Abel, what the writer is saying is that the death of Christ on the cross is superior to any animal sacrifice leading up to the cross. And that it, it is at the at the cross, that sins are truly and actually paid for. So the bottom line is that Sinai represents law, it represents slavery, it represents uh, something that is impossible for man to achieve. In contrast now, we have salvation and free grace, we have an eternal destiny that is secure, and it is ours not on the basis of an animal sacrifice, but on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then he is going to make the application as we go into the next section, which we'll get to next time. And he then applies it. He says, so in light of all of this, see to it or make sure that you don't refuse him who speaks. Don't become negative towards God. Don't turn your back on God. When God commands, then we need to listen. And so do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape... And they didn't remember the Exodus generation was grumbling and complaining in the, in the wilderness. 
And so uh, because of that and because of their disobedience, because of the fact that when they got to Kadesh Barnea and they did not trust uh, God to give them the victory in Cana, uh, in Canaan when they went in, that the, uh, when the 12, tri- 12 uh, spies came back uh, and only uh, two of them said, yes, we can do what God said because God's going to fulfill his promise, uh, the other ten said, no, we can't because there's giants in the land and there's too many of them and they have fortified cities, that the re- people said, no, we can't trust God. So because of that, they went into the sin unto death. They did not escape the judgment of God. And so verse 26, we're reminded that uh, God uh, is going to bring ultimate judgment upon the earth. And this is the focal point of 26 uh, down through uh, chapter, I mean, down through verse 28. Then in verse 13, we're going to go into the concluding exhortation, which begins with a series of commands. It's just a list of spiritual and moral imperatives that are to characterize uh, the Christian life. And so we will come back next time and focus on the last part of um, Hebrews 12. Any questions? Jeff. When you talk about uh, the imputation, it seems like you're saying there were two imputations, one judgment and then one sin. No, no, no. The, judge, the imputation is that our sins are imputed to Christ, and then they're judged by God. He is judged by God. So the judgment's not, it's not an imputation. The judgment is on the imputation. The, you couldn't say that the imputation was, it was, it was, judged in our place, but he had to receive our sins to be judged. Right. Right. The judgment is the is the condemnation or the legal penalty. The imputation is what Jesus receives from uh, you know that God legally credits to him so that then God can can legally uh, legally judge them. Right. Okay? Any other questions? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that we are the wonderful beneficiaries of grace. Your grace has supplied so much for us. It's given us a salvation based not on works but on faith, that we receive uh, salvation by faith alone, not by the works of the law. And, Father, we are also sanctified. Our spiritual growth is also on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with this challenge that the writer of the Hebrews gave to his readers and that we might be reminded that we are to uh, continue to live in light of our future destiny and the fact that there is accountability for us at the judgment seat of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.